As business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support from people like you, we're able to continue doing this. Please consider joining our Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. Listening to Burn and Return, a weekly one-hour podcast covering news from the agricultural and turfgrass industries. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Burn and Return. Uh, I want to personally apologize about last week. Uh, I was, my kids were having some health problems. I had a, a weird health problem. And then uh, when we were attempting to get a rescheduled date, uh, my mom started struggling pretty, pretty hard with the COVID, but it looks like everything has is on the up and up right now. So we are back behind the wheel and alongside me today, I have my two wonderful partners in crime. And uh, speaking of partners, I think that's very fitting considering the show before the show topic of conversation today. Uh, Mr. Ryan DeMay and Ray Ito. Gentlemen, how are y'all doing tonight? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just trying to figure out where I can go spend $5 and get filled up the best. KFC, maybe over at Popeye's or down there at Chick-fil-A. You can always go to Subway. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's a foot long, though. I'm pretty sure I can do better than that Chick-fil-A. Ray, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I was telling uh, Matt that this morning I had the opportunity to look at an absolute disaster of a lawn. Absolute disaster. Uh, Yeah. So some some uh, high high to cut zoysia grass full of weeds. Oh, that's that's always a good and and severely absolutely overwatered like. I was told the uh, irrigation system comes on daily and it's running at night. That sounds like a really good, perfect job for you, Ray. And I'm glad you're <laughs> out there to be able to take that on. What a way to spend uh, the Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, Demay, congrats to your Bengals, by the way. Um, oh, what? Hey, 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 hey. Huh? <laughs> I know. Brown, oh, Browns, well. Browns, Browns, Browns. Yeah. Hey, look, it's the same state, right? And same uh, state. Yeah. Doesn't work like that. <laughs> well, no oh, one was for the Chiefs, right? I mean, was there anyone in America that was rooting for the Chiefs? I don't think so. Uh, maybe, maybe the strange people that live in misery. I mean, Missouri, but uh, that was about it. <laughs> um, we got some let's, Chiefs fans that are listeners. Huh? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we got some Chiefs fans that are listeners. <laughs> Do we? Well. Uh, For anybody that I've made angry doing that, don't worry. I have not watched an NFL game in uh, probably a decade, and I'm not going to start now either. So uh, I'm just going off. No tittens, huh? That's all on Barstool Sports. No No tittens for you, huh? I'm just, no, man. It's it's SEC football, and and that I don't really, it's college football, really. I I watch more than the SEC. I watch college football, and then 
uh, a little bit of college baseball and uh, a, a little bit of college basketball, and then and then I'm I'm done. I check out. I I just it's hard for me to get into pro sports anymore. Don't get me wrong; they're incredibly talented, but it's uh, just, I don't know. I just don't get into it. But you know what I do get into? Yeah, that's why I, like I got into oh, yeah. this week's headlines. <laughs> <laughs> This first one here, and you know, you wonder, you wonder how this. Uh, you're going to start seeing more and more of this, and uh, and there are are you know, f- uh, what is it, farm action, uh, farm policy action, uh, yeah, farm action uh, that is out there. You can go to farmaction.us and learn a little bit about these people that are also fighting this fight that we're going to be talking about here as well. And that is farmers pushing back on fertilizer prices. In the place of yield records, new local equipment purchases, and who bought what farm around the corner, conversations between farmers this winter are instead largely focused on skyrocketing fertilizer costs. The coffee shop talk around the neighborhood is different every year. Farmers always seem to have something to yelp a little bit about. Uh, This year is definitely fertilizer. And I'm going to skip down here where he says, we were putting together numbers this year. After harvest, because we do a lot of our buying in the fall of the year, just for our 800 acres of corn, it is going to cost us an additional $102,000 just for our liquid 28% UAN that we use. This is the talk of the town. We feed a lot of our corn to livestock, so we're always going to need a certain amount of corn no matter what. A lot of folks are penciling out corn versus soybean if they're willing to switch up their rotations. It may come down to availability in the markets around you. If you have a good, strong corn basis, you may be apt to plant some corn and take that risk to take advantage of those better prices. I have a lot of neighbors I talk to. Some are large operations and some are small acres. They're going to do what pencils out. Everybody's operation is different. Some pencil out to keep the same rotation. A lot of others are not going to take on that input cost up front. They may go a little heavier on the soybean side this year. Kick is also concerned about the ripple effect of high input costs through the rest of the supply chain. We are penciling out the cost of production on the crop acres, but we have a cost of production on the cattle as well. When you get the higher grain price, they should come with the higher cattle prices. But the input cost of feeding the cattle seem to go a lot high, feeding the cattle seem to go a lot higher than the other end of things when we get to sell those cattle. Yikes! Uh, in response to the phosphorus, uh, wait. Uh, through his involvement in Ohio corn wheat, uh, Click has been learning more about this issue that goes well beyond the confines of Stark County coffee shops. Uh, through the National Corn Growers Association, state organizations commissioned two studies taking a look at fertilizer prices. One focused on nitrogen, and the other on phosphorus. In response to the phosphorus study, NCGA and OC, uh, OCWGA had multiple conversations with Mosaic. Mosaic. Concerning the tariffs that were imposed in March by the U.S. International Trade Commission uh, at the fertilizer company's request. Since then, fertilizer prices have dramatically increased. Mosaic's posture to date has been a masterpiece of irresponsible corporate social responsibility. The letter highlighted the issues Mosaic has placed on its customers and suggested the company's monopoly is creating serious problems for farmers. Estimates show that tariffs between 30 and 70% on phosphate imports would equate to roughly 480 and $640 million in added fertilizer bills for U.S. farmers. Only 15% of phosphorus imports now come into the U.S. without tariffs. And experts say that using commerce and ITC to manipulate the supply curve does indeed dictate price to farmers. So, Anyway, you can go through here and see, uh, you know, where they go in through, you know, the cost per ton on anhydrous ammonia, which is at just all time record highs as well right now. 
what's interesting, what's interesting about this is that, and we'll kind of get into this with one of our later topics, is that urea spot prices have begun to fall out of New Orleans, which is a good thing. However, the problem is, is that the inventory we have out right now that brokers and traders are trading on uh, is not at the new spot prices out of NOLA. So it's going to take a month or two for those uh, for those inventories to be sold through. It may take longer. It may take a quarter for those to be sold through before those urea prices begin to reflect in stores. Um, but you got to remember that in the face of shortages, a lot of people were going ahead and buying massive amounts of quantity. So um, what normally may take a couple months may lead into a quarter before those prices start to come back to normal. One thing to keep in mind, and I, you know, of course, we've got other geopolitical issues taking place right now that are going to continue to influence this. But if anybody is interested on the back end of this, uh, again, you can head over to Twitter at FarmActionUS. Uh, that is uh, actively working Washington right now on not just fertilizer prices, but they are probably the most aggressive uh, right now for not just nitrogen, not just phosphorus, but also potash, uh, because we also have Nutrien that has almost a monopoly on uh, potash as well. And uh, how this was allowed to happen uh, is, is up for gigantic debate. And um, however, we are the ones that end up suffering from this through all aspects of agriculture. Gentlemen, talk to me. Um, what do you, what do y'all think? Is the, are we going to be able to, is, is anything going to be able to be accomplished out of this? Or is this one of those where we just, we've got to ride the wave, get through it, bitch about it. Everybody will forget about it. Nothing's going to change. And we're locked in to the new status quo. And that is mosaic CF industries and, and uh, nutrient are just going to dictate to us how volatile and how 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 much of a wild ride we're going to have to ride with our business from this point moving forward. Oof. I mean, if, if recent history is any indicator, it's going to tell you that it's probably, probably going to be like this for a little while. I mean, the, the article is is pretty uh, pretty telling in the way that they go through and they look at and they chart basically the price of nitrogen fertilizer relative to natural gas and how it's basically followed the same curve and where. You know, fertilizer companies in the past were pricing this based on their inputs. Now they're able to basically kind of charge whatever they want. And they know that there's, you know, a flush of cash in the market, particularly here domestically, and they're charging accordingly. So these tariffs, too, don't exactly help. Uh, where, you know, these companies, if you go look at their stock prices and how they've done on the market, you know, relative to, you know, some other agrochem. Uh, companies that are out there it's a startling it's astounding the gains that they've made in the last two years and so i don't know i it, how it sets up for people like you said matt it, where yeah the nola spot price is down uh does that mean that you know we get to what we would consider to be normalized prices uh, in the next six months i'm not sure that we'll see normalized prices for a while i mean most just Retail on the street prices, you know, I did a lot of checking on this uh, a couple of weeks back just to kind of make sure that our, you know, our uh, programs are in line, things like that, and literally double. I mean, pretty much you can go ahead and take whatever you're paying a year ago at this time and double it, you know. So let's just say that those fertilizer prices come down even 25%. That's still very, very high. And I think, you know, a lot of folks are in tough spots i was talking to uh, an application company 
on Friday that is uh, you know faced with a lot of long term contracts that they're locked into on uh, you know sub work essentially, and the price can't change. The price is the price, and so you know they're kind of looking at what can we do? Can we do fewer applications? Can we do, you know what can we do to make this all work? And struggling because of the way these contracts are written. So. You know, the big boys out there, I don't think CF Industries, I don't think Mosaic, I don't think anybody else is going to let this go quietly. You know, if if these uh, Farm Action Network and some of these other, you know, trade and lobby groups want to step up to the plate, I'm sure that they'd be glad to tap into their war chest and make them go away uh, in a probably not so nice way. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what I'm afraid of, is this is going to turn into... Uh the fertilizer cartel or, or mafia, you know, doing their thing to maintain their control. Mm. I mean, that's just uh, what I'm afraid of. And it's disturbing to me that this was basically allowed to happen. I mean, why does nutrient have control over most of the potash uh, used in the U.S. fertilizer market? And why does Mosaic likewise have control over just about all the phosphorus used in the U.S. market? I mean, what is the rationale behind allowing uh, the creation of a monopoly? And that's the part I cannot wrap my head around is how anybody could look at this, whether you're in the industry or not, uh, any economist mm-hmm. or whoever, the SEC can, can look at this and and be like, no, this is no good. You know, wasn't it uh, uh, Walgreens had trouble acquiring Rite Aid because they were worried that it was forming too large of a pharmaceutical conglomerate or whatever. However, mm-hmm. in the fertilizer side of this, uh, no. For fertilizer, let's go ahead and let that run. Uh, that that's mm-hmm. good, but for pharmaceuticals, yeah. no, that's not good. Get the get the. I don't know, man. It chaps my ass, and uh, and I I don't see how this gets turned around without major major uh, overhauls. And the thing is, is that it doesn't matter. And I and I'm going to be perfectly transparent about this. It does not matter who is in office because both sides of the aisle have allowed this to happen. Uh, This is not Mm -hmm. one that you can point the finger at the other and be like, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Do you know the meme of Spider-Man pointing at one another? You know, Uh, this is everybody on all sides of the aisle in government pointing at one another, you know, saying, no, this is your fault kind of thing. When in, in reality, they should all have their fingers pointing at themselves. Uh, because I think one of the the, the functions of of uh, government in the sense it should be uh, to prevent the formation of monopolies, and that's exactly what had happened is they steamrolled into one. Um, we'll check this out here. Newsom's climate plan. Newsom's climate plans raise concerns over pesticides and organic farming. Uh, Governor Governor Newsom uh, toured an organic farm in 2020 to announce his 30 by 30 executive order. Uh, The Newsom administration has released a series of climate plans that are opening new conversations about the government's role in reducing the use of conventional pesticides to lower emissions while ramping up organic farming to capture more atmospheric carbon within the soil. 
The CARB is spearheading the latest effort with an update to the state's seminal climate policy, the AB32 Climate Scoping Plan. CARB has drafted four possible modeling scenarios that include natural and working lands within the plan. Agricultural trade groups responding to the early framework appreciated that the agency is proposing targets rather than setting limits for policies that impact the industry and that it has resisted calls from the environmental groups to limit the use of pesticides. Crop protection tools, those made by man and those made by nature, help farmers and ranchers meet the global demand for food, feed, fiber, and fuel, uh, argued a coalition of agricultural groups led by the California Farm Bureau. CARB has noted on several occasions that the chemicals and agriculturally used pesticides are not identified within the scope of the act. And for some, such as nitrous oxide, research is insufficient to positively identify the resulting impacts. The groups were pushing back on a petition from a coalition of environmental justice groups led by Pest in, uh, the Pesticide Action Network North America, which urged CARB to further study methane and nitrous oxide emissions from the industry, particularly in livestock production, to include the scenario modeling. The environmental groups also called for full life cycle analysis of fumigants and other potential public health impacts. In separate comments, a policy advocate for the Agricultural Council of California reasoned that crop protect, uh, protection tools help farmers protect the global food supply from pests and disease while reducing waste, maximizing yields, and improving efficiency. She noted that pesticides were not within the original scope of AB 32 legislation. Two of the scenarios within the draft report proposed to increase organic production. And we'll kind of go off here is that the trade-off, they argue, is that boosting organic production can lead to lower yields, requiring higher, higher market price, more land, water, labor, and equipment, which increases emissions by moving food production out of state, an unintended effect known as leakage. The groups also worry that artificially subsidizing the organic market would grant a competitive advantage to new producers while hurting the state's existing operations. The oversupply would reduce the price premium while increasing production costs, disincentivizing farmers to transition away from conventional farming and adding more barriers to entry for new or socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. So here we, we go again. It sounds like there are some attempts at some common sense applied policies here. And then also at the same time, you know, the, the reality of what happens when you attempt to I, I jump aggressively at organic farming. Uh, I don't know. It's coming out of California. I'm curious to hear y'all's take on this. What, what y'all got? Lay it on me. Like you said, the common sense things. Uh, a good. It, it's it's not the just beating the drum saying, "Hey, we're going to go this way. We're going to go this way," and that's we're going to put blinders on to everything, right? And it 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 pretty much at least acknowledges that there are some very big hurdles, like not just Oh, hey, we need better, you know, organic or biopesticides. The fact that, yeah, it's going to take more land, it's going to take more resources to make this happen until we hit that point where it, you know, we we, we lose that point of diminishing returns, right? It'll become closer to equilibrium between conventional and organic. Uh, what's, you know, what's the push here? So I don't know. I mean, I'm curious, Ray, how do you? How do you meld these two together? Like, you know, it seems like it's working right now in the sense that, you know, there are folks that are growing conventionally and producing a lot of food, right? Or a lot of mm -hmm. crops that will go into food or other production uh, means. And then you've got folks that are doing organic and we have choices in the marketplace. We have choices on price points. Uh, you know, where, where do you see this going? I'm kind of curious. Where I see this going is the realities of supporting our population are going to just come sharply to a point because we go back to 
that failed mandate for organic only in Sri Lanka. Do we want to recreate the Sri Lankan situation here in the United States? And it's not only the issue of food production itself, but organic production replaces synthetic fertilizers and effective conventional pesticides with extremely energy and labor-intensive practices. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Mm -hmm. And I keep on hammering on this where deciding not to use a pesticide, for example, has an opposite and rather dramatic energy cost. It costs energy, a lot of energy. I mean, I, I, I run into that every day where... I'm constantly cursing the state's uh, highway department, for example. I'm cursing them. And some of my friends curse them as well because they know that repeated mowing is not without environmental cost, for example. Kill that freaking thing. Keep it dead. <laughs> um, yeah. Go ahead, Demay. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think I, I think one of the, the big things there is that land use piece. Like, if we're going to find a way to make this work, I don't know how you overcome the disparity in production, which means, uh, you know, we want to find a, a, find a way to make this work, right? You got to prevent that whole leakage thing. And I don't know who starts doing that or where you start to go, but I think that that's the one you got to solve first. So, all right, I'll shut up. Go ahead. No, I think I think you're 100% spot on and that's the big gigantic mystery in this whole thing and uh, and how do we do it without subsidizing the whole thing all over again which is already propping up agriculture as we know it today. Um nanobubble technology may improve soil health sustainability in the turf grass industry. I thought this was interesting uh because it's coming out of Griffin Georgia, the University of Georgia here. Uh, tiny bubbles led by soil microbiologist uh, Mussey Havtalassi. Uh, the Georgia Department of Agriculture sponsored study will evaluate the potential applications of nano bubble technology to control pathogens and improve plant growth, water use efficiency, and soil biological, biological health in turfgrass systems. Other researchers on the project include turfgrass and forage pathologist Bokra Bari and crop and soil scientist David Jesperson, all with the College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences. Uh, using technology that generates oxygenated nanobubbles, which are roughly 25 times smaller than a grain of salt, researchers will apply nanocharged water to turf grass root, root systems through irrigation. Uh, the technology is based on the idea of putting oxygen into these tiny nanoscale bubbles, which have a higher surface area per unit volume and therefore are more stable and liquid than bubbles with larger sizes, such as carbonated drinks. Researchers will test the technology through laboratory greenhouse and field studies to measure how using nanobubble technology influences water use as well as turf shoot and root growth. And then, and then they're also going to check how these, uh, these re reactive oxidizers uh, can potentially kill microbial cells, which may help control plant pathogens that cause dollar spot and leaf spot to costly common fungal diseases in turf grass. 
Uh, this is where the sustainability aspect comes in. If we can show that this works in turf grass, it can lead to reduced use of chemicals and fungicides because the radicals released by the nanobubbles are controlling pathogens. Interesting, interesting, interesting. This is funded by the Georgia Department of Agriculture under the Specialty Crop Block Grant Program. Again, you know, we talk a lot about the uh, uh, the evolution of the industry, right? And I think a lot of what we will see is as part of the evolution of the industry is going to rely, rely really heavily on innovation. And we're going to see innovation come in all different types of forms, right? And that's going to be in automation. Uh, that's going to be through AI integration. Uh, it's going to come through robots. Um, you know, how do we manage labor costs? And genetics is going to be a play a play a part and then absolutely new technologies such as nanobubbles which sounds absolutely crazy but but i would say it's 100% doable and in the event it does work you know you think about it you start using an irrigation system to accurately uh, and appropriately place uh, oxygenated bubbles in in the in in within the soil potentially good things can happen. Theoretically, good things can happen. I'm excited for this. I think it shows that uh, the, the hunger to innovate in this industry is still out there. And the fact that this is being tested in turf grass and not irrigated ag shows me personally that there are guys in the industry, in the turf grass industry, that are actively working their ass off to do something turf specific, which is just so exciting to me. Um, I'm curious, do y'all have any, any insight into this? Is, is this the first you've heard of it? And, uh, or do, I, I don't know. I'm just, I saw this. I thought it was interesting. I'm curious. Do y'all know anything else about it? First I've heard of it. What do you think about, uh, repurposed bong water for this, Ray? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, this is the first I've heard of it too, but then this has caught my attention because I'm familiar with utilization of peroxides in turf grass. I'm very familiar yes. with it. And to me, I've used, utilized it as a very effective tool. But the problem with peroxides is that it is something where if I had my druthers there would be a way to economically generate that reactive oxygen and constantly apply it. Whereas I mostly use a peroxide based product as an emergency treatment for certain diseases. It, it works very well, but then it's rather cumbersome. I mean, Brian, I yes. love Zeratol. I love Zeratol. I, get, I love so, that stuff too. I love yeah, that stuff, it, but then it's a pain in the ass to deal with, though. It is, and uh, I think incorporating that type, uh, what it can and can't do, right? Incorporating that mm -hmm. into irrigation water, I would just uh, at scale. That'd be the next thing: is how do we make it work at scale, right? So, I, I don't know. I I'm very anxious. I hopefully they'll release their data they'll come up with something yeah yeah they'll, they'll come up with something that actually works because if i you know because i i, I deal too with anaerobic soils i deal a lot with that and 
oddly enough, one of my solutions or, or you know, modes that I go into with anaerobic soil is I use reactive oxygen for that too, peroxide. Yeah, so there is uh, a, an engineering company called Top Golf Services, uh, David uh, Bataler Fida, um, who's an agronomist and architect, uh, that has a, a system he calls the pure oxygen method that relies on utilizing hydrogen peroxide. In in and according to their methodology, they're able to avoid. Uh, hollow coring and uh, and, sp- and spraying for root funguses and insects and nematode control. So, you know, wow. I, there's 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 a lot of potential here, and and the fact that this is being investigated as an irrigation add-on is is very interesting to me, and uh, I think I think there's a lot of potential there. Uh, gentlemen, we are getting to that time of the show where we are going to honor those that honor us. And that would be our patrons. I want to say thank you to all of you for allowing us to raise as much hell as we do on here and, <laughs> uh, and be, and be as, as wild and carefree as we could possibly be. Uh, for the cost of an airport beer, you get to join the $10 tier here, and you get all kinds of additional uh, uh, benefits. You know, like, look, you get hooked up on this thing where quarterly you get, you get free merch. Look, you're just going to get a sticker, a sticker that shows up and it'll be something exclusive that we don't normally put out to everybody else. Uh, if you're in the top tier, you get a t-shirt. And if you haven't seen some of the t-shirts that have been put out, uh, J pink, absolutely not this last one out of the park. Um, <laughs> look at that. Look at that. It just, I mean, that's beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. Is that the best uh, what did you say? Ryan, you said yeah, that was a, a gaseous stream of uh, uh, glyphosate coming from the exhaust there? I believe so, yep. yes. <laughs> yeah, we're fogging glyphosate, Matt. <laughs> it's actually volatilized 2,4-D. We actually, Ray came up with an, an engine that runs on 2,4-D. You just <laughs> glug at the tank there. Fill, 2,4-D in, dicamba out. It's amazing. Fill her oh, up, Tim. Yeah. Oh, wait, we're talking about the fuel tank again. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and also let's get, look, I had, I had a good time talking to, uh, Jesse Bousquet over the weekend. And, uh, so, you know, why not? Uh, we can, we can, let's listen. If you're a criminal out there and we know we have criminals that listen to us, I read your stories. I'm not judging you. Mm -hmm. I'm not judging you, but if you need a federal attorney, reach out to Jesse Bousquet. Look, he's one of the boys. Anybody that has sprayed lawns at True Green before, anybody that has worked on wastewater treatment facilities and then said, you know what, I'm having a midlife crisis, I'm going to become a lawyer, which he actually did before he had a midlife crisis, that is the kind of attorney you need to reach out to. You know why? Because he drinks old fashions on the weekends because he can, damn it. And then he'll go shovel the four feet of snow drifts that end up on his his doorstep. So. Uh, check him out if you are a criminal and just understand that as a criminal, you do have a home here on the Burn and Return podcast. <laughs> Gentlemen, let's check out this week's Burns. Fire! Oh. Oh. Ah! Ah! Uh, she was doing that, man. Boy, I tell you what. I'm not sure what Ray and Sheila got into in that van, but uh, it 
it'll <laughs> never smell the same. I promise you that. Um, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't know where I was going to go with that. But no, I was just going to say, I thought it smelled, I thought it smelled like somebody microwaved some socks and some freshly made pancakes after they got down there. <laughs> Black eyed peas could help eliminate the need for fertilizer. <laughs> Uh, this is from our good friend, uh, 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 turf therapy, uh, Robert Palmer coming all the way from Germany, uh, Deutschland black eyed peas ability to attract beneficial bacteria. Isn't diminished by modern farming practices. New university of California, Riverside research shows planting it in rotation with other crops could help growers avoid the need for costly environmental damaging fertilizers without enough nitrogen plants won't grow. The plant family that black-eyed peas belong to, legumes, are unique in their ability to obtain substantial amounts of uh, of nitrogen by enticing and protecting nitrogen-fixing bacteria. Uh, they get the nodules. Anybody that knows a little bit about legumes know they get the nodules. Uh, oftentimes, when people grow crops, they focus on above-ground traits like disease resistance, yield of protein content. Wow. Only recently have growers begun to pay closer attention to below-ground traits like the abilities, the plant's ability to attract soil-enhancing microbes. Um, and then we go through results from this research have just been published in the journal Evolution. The experiment involved 20 types of black-eyed peas and point towards a genetic basis for their symbiotic abilities. We can use this information in the future to design better-performing plants. He and his team focus on black-eyed peas because they are also drought-tolerant, another important trait for Southern California growers. Uh, to attract the bacteria that fixes nitrogen rhizobia, black-eyed peas emit chemicals through their roots. Uh, eventually, the roots form tumor-like nodules that protect the rhizobia and supply them with carbon. In return, the black-eyed peas receive a useful fixed form of nitrogen. Uh, so in why I put this in the burns is, look, you know, I think it's well established that uh, legumes in rotation is a good thing because of the uh, the nitrogen fixation that occurs. And that's why, again, modern conventional agriculture, what do we see typically rotated with corn? Soybeans. Soybeans. And why mm-hmm. is corn rotated with soybean? Or weed control. Weed control and a, the, mm-hmm. a little bit of nitrogen carryover that you get from it because of the nodules that end up occurring with that. And fun fact Fun fact, you could also, uh, uh, if you were to fertilize, not just with black-eyed peas, say you took soybeans and fertilized with them, guess what? Soybeans are probably one of the higher analyses in terms of legumes uh, when you apply. So if you took soybean meal, you're peeking out an analysis of somewhere around a 712. I do not know exactly what it is for black-eyed peas, and I'll be excited to look that up as this does uh, um, uh, I have not been able to find this uh, this uh, article out of evolution, but I'm sure it'll show up any day now. And when it does, I'd be curious to see what the uh, what you know what the rate of return uh, of from nitrogen fixation actually occurs. And if you are fertilizing with with actual black eyed peas or black eyed pea meal, uh, what that uh, analysis looks like as well. So I don't know. Interesting take. I don't feel like there's anything actually groundbreaking taking place here. What about y'all? What's your take? I mean, you know, legumes have a place. If you want to have, from a lawn perspective, there's some good research has been done even recently. Uh, I can't remember on uh, cool season. I know Mississippi State, they did some on uh, 
hybrid Bermuda grass, including white clover in the mix. If you wanted mm-hmm. sort of a, a lower maintenance Bermuda grass lawn, and I want to say their carryover, right, of uh, clover was something on the order of like 20 to 30 percent, you know, so you're you're able to reduce and not apply. Or if you're I mean, in those situations, I think when you have a mixed lawn like that, you're probably not applying much if any nitrogen so yeah i mean there's there's definite benefits to it i mean in the ag world obviously like you were saying about you know crop rotations and things like that uh i don't know i mean if if we sit here and we just talked about you know in the first 15 minutes of the program about how you know nitrogen fertilizer is probably not coming back uh to earth or at least into the fucking atmosphere for the next oh you know three or four years you know, in reality, hopefully, maybe, who knows? But uh, maybe this is a way to go about it, right? Thoughts? I I, I think that uh, when you talk about utilizing legumes, that's just an old, old practice. I mean, nothing new. I mean, the ancient farmers and growers knew that you alternate grains with legumes because that's how you can maintain productivity of the land. So this is like nothing new or innovative. And however, this is where the burn comes in. I think it is very disingenuous for the writers of this article to suggest that just by doing this crop rotation, all or most of the fertilizer needs are taken care of. And oh, by the way, Matt, when you're talking about leguminous crops and nitrogen fixing, the ability of that crop to fix nitrogen is highly dependent on this one trace element, molybdenum. And so you get into another layer of complexity because a lot of soils are actually molybdenum deficient. And so if somebody utilizes or incorporates leguminous crops into their agronomic program, but is not paying attention to that, then they're probably not going to get all of the benefits out of doing this. So it's it's just you know you got to be careful. And in your T's and cross your eyes. <laughs> and before people start running out and buying a bunch of sodium molybdenate to go apply, you know, hang on, molybdenum Stop. is not something for for, oh, for people yeah. to be handling. This is this is a a heavy metal and uh, and and it, you're super easy to reach toxic Wait. thresholds with this. I thought this was going to be one of the top five lawn trends in 2022, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, man. You really stole my thunder. I'm fucking uh, bummed now. Well, well and I guess what? Maybe just I guess I got to I'm going to do a little do, I'm gonna do a little editing and I'm going to have the top four. So kiss my ass. <laughs> yeah, because I've also had requests from various people asking me how do I kill the weeds and still keep the clover alive? And for me, I, I do have kind of an easy 
easy button answer for that. And what I tell people that ask that is if you need to keep the clover in your lawn alive because you're maintaining that clover as a beneficial co-inhabitant of the lawn, what I tell people is your best friend in that case is low rates of 2,4-D amine not mixed with anything else. No MCPP, no triclopyr, fluoroxypyr, MCPA, or MCPP, but straight 2,4-D amine. And, and to put this into perspective, five grams of sodium molybdate at, uh, uh, is enough to cause testicular damage in men. Um, like if, you, if you're a 200-pound man, uh, five grams of sodium molybdate will uh, will destroy your testicles. So, uh, too late. You know, Yikes! Again, <laughs> Yikes! Again, you know, to put that into perspective, you know, when when people are talking about pounds to the acre and things like that in in handling pounds to the acre, how how easy is it uh, to get a gram or two on you or in you, and the health repercussions that can uh, occur from that? So. Again, molybdenum is nothing to just play around with. Um, you're 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 better off in using it in fractional fractional amounts already occurring in uh, whatever uh, a, a micronutrient uh, product that you're doing. Do not go source. Do not go source a straight molybdenum product because you want to have a micro clover yard and destroy destroy your testicles as a result of yeah the, so. probably the best best source is going to be go check out urban dictionary they made some kind of sadomasochist ball torture sex move so. <laughs> <sighs> farmers farmers are furious in new york because, because of, get yourself together man <laughs> Matt chuckles was, at ball torture. It was, it, was the, <laughs> it was the Urban Dictionary reference. <laughs> How many times have you gotten lost in Urban Dictionary? And like, it does not mean that. Who made that up? <laughs> Maybe you should be. Yeah, that, that should be our full time job. We should be arbiters on Urban Dictionary. All right, let's go talk about overtime in New York. Um, because New York is in within the United States, uh, the epitome of clown world. Uh, New York's farming families say they're furious as the state looks to lower the cap allowed on overtime. The Farm Labor Wage Board voted Friday to gradually decrease the threshold over the next decade decade from 60 hours a week to 40 hours a week. The decision was made despite 70% of the testimony from farmers asking for the rule to stay as it is. If the recommendation is approved by the state labor commissioner, New York would join California, Washington State in phasing in an overtime threshold common in other industries. But the prospect is alarming to farmers who warn the extra cost could cripple the state's agricultural industry. The North Country's leaders are bashing the move, urging the board to reconsider. Uh, the decision by the Farm Laborers Wage Board proves once again how out of touch Albany. Uh, well, I, I'm going to skip that statement because it's uh, it's politically charged for no reason at all. Uh, at a time when residents are leaving our state in droves and opportunities are dwindling. Now is certainly not the time to move forward with an unpopular mandate that makes it harder for farmers to hire workers. Agriculture is the economic backbone of the state, and everyone agrees that both farmers and farm workers deserve a fair deal. Um, and, and this is why this is why I think this is absolute insanity is um, 
you know, I have worked in, you know, lawn care, the, the overwhelming majority of my year of my career. Right. And there is something about it that um, you do not when, when you live and die by the weather, uh, you live and die by the weather. And so when you have a green light, you go and you do not stop until your body forces you to stop. And, and sometimes that's 70 hours. Sometimes that's, that's 80, that's 80 hours. Um, sometimes that's a hundred hours. And that is the risk to reward ratio metric of trying to do something by the terms of the weather. And for the government to come in and dictate this to say, you know what, we're going to cap it at 60. You know what? No, we're actually going to bring that down to 40, which is what they are looking to do here is uh, they want to over lower the overtime threshold for farm, farm workers from 60 hours to 40 hours a week. Listen, I have, I, it, I don't know. To somebody, somebody else jump in here because, because I worked in, in a salary position in lawn care mm-hmm. for a long mm-hmm. time. And there was, I, I, there was, there was no such thing as overtime. There was no such thing as working too much. There was no such thing as working too little because you know why when winter rolled around, yes, it was sitting at home with their thumb up their ass. I was. Yeah. And Matt, this just now all makes sense to me because by the way, in, in the state of Hawaii, 40 hour overtime is applicable to all trades and industries and has been for forever. So guess what that means for us? An hourly agricultural worker has to make sure that he doesn't work more than 40 hours a week. I mean, the cutoff time is strict. I mean, I even see that in my friends where their frustration is that at exactly eight hours, people throw down tools and burn rubber out of, out of the lot. They're gone. I mean, and like you say, agriculture and turf care, we are at the mercy of the weather. So really when we got work to do, uh, that eight hour day, kiss it goodbye because you got work to do. You got shit to do. And Listen, by it, the way, and by the and, way, and Matt, I, and, go ahead, go ahead. And I too, uh, when I was somebody's employee, they very quickly converted me to a salaried position. Do you know why? To skirt the fact that you were making double the salary, uh, you know, working 89, oh. or, well, working 60 hours a week. 60, 60 to 70 hours a week. That was my usual because uh, I would not uh, do this thing where, oh, three o'clock comes around. I'm off work. No, I stayed out there until shit was done. Even if that meant, I was working like a 10 or 11 hour day every day. 
Yeah, I mean, you can have the conversation with my wife, and I hate to sound cold about this. And Demay, I, you know, you're the voice of reason here, and I know I sound incredibly cold here. And so, you, you know, talk talk to me. What's going on in your head here? I mean, I I think it's just a fact of life of what everybody that's in the farming industry and to a uh, the same extent turf industry has known for a long time that uh you know it is a job where you do what you got to do and you get done what you when have it, to get done and some yeah and when sometimes you, when you can do it when you can yeah. do it you got to get it done man right right i mean i can and i can remember on the golf course you know all the young guys that were always like oh man a rain day we're gonna go home early and you had to explain to them i mean yeah you're gonna go home early but I mean, it's Tomo- going to be tomorrow. Tomorrow, you're yeah, going to be well, staying to to do what needed to be done <laughs> the day exactly, before. That's it. <laughs> exactly. And so, like, the, the work doesn't go away just because it's raining. And sometimes it gets, mm-hmm. you know, even not only more compressed in terms of the time you have available to get it done, but also it can create more work. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think for for these folks, right uh I, I don't think that anybody wants to work any more than what they have to certainly but to to basically say hey listen we're going to take your overtime requirement and slash it by a third and you're just supposed to deal with it like that's that's a massive shift in the way that those folks do business right because right the the what the and here is here's always the thing Matt, that pissed me off. I'll, I'll I'll tell you this on the golf courses. You know, we'd have folks that worked overtime on a you know an hourly basis, and the response always was, "We'll just hire more people, right?" And then you'd have you know you won't need as many guys to work overtime. And it's not like that, right? Like just on the farm, same thing. You have people that are in certain roles there to do certain things, right? That I would be violating labor law to put them in a salary position, but you're telling me that their skills, their abilities, their knowledge, all that kind of stuff, their experience isn't worth it to pay them overtime for them to be here when they need to do the things mm-hmm. that we all need to do to be successful, right? You're telling me yeah. to just go hire some swinging dicks off the street and everything's going to be all kumbaya. That's not the way that it works. It's just simply no, not. It doesn't and happen especially, and, and, and I mean, this goes in lawn care. I'm sure it's the same in farming. I've, you know, not worked in a farming operations, but I've worked you know, in enough situations where it's a decentralized labor force and you have to go out and trust people just like a lawn care business, right? You have multiple techs, you got employees, you ain't there holding their hand the whole time. And if it means that they need to be out there, sun up to sun down, right? Knocking on people's mm-hmm. doors, triple furting people's lawns, despite those people that don't pay and want to try and pay you naked. <laughs> That's right. So, solidarity, right? My friend solidarity. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's pretty sad that that we had to get to this point and there's not a better way to take care of this. And especially in the labor market that we're in, there's a whole, I could go on, but I'll shut the fuck up. And, and I know, and people are going to be like, Oh, well, you know, fair pay, you know, they deserve fair pay. You know, other people, when they get to, then they should hours, pay them more you know, they, they, they pay them more. They, yeah. And, and just, that, that's going to work itself out. That's, a, that's irrespective of the overtime laws. Like they know, and they know what they're getting into as well. Like that's the, I, 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 I hate to sound cold, but, you know what you're signing up for. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I took a job for for uh, my very first job out of college. Knew I was going to get my dick ground on the ground. Twenty eight thousand five hundred dollars a year in two thousand three. Knew I was going to get my dick ground on the ground. Didn't care. Uh, yeah, That's what I, I started at True Green for like at like eleven dollars and forty six cents uh, an hour, and I grew it out. 
80 hour weeks from February through November. And, it, you know, Saturday's mandatory. And, uh, and, uh, it, you know, after, after about your first three months, you get put on salary. And the way it works in the state of Tennessee is that after 40 hours, you make half time. Uh, you do not get continue to be paid your full hourly rate, hourly rate. You get paid half your hourly rate on a 40 hour work week. So the more hours you work, the less you make. However, uh, at the same time, I also did collect a check, you know, for the remainder of the time where I did sit with my thumb up my ass. So, you know, it, it, it you know, it's, it's a nature of the beast that we get into here. Uh, this last one here, because I like black helicopters circling around my head, um, <laughs> more fertilizer volatility, the Russia Ukraine conflict could cause fertilizer supply and price issues. Um, so for those of you that don't know, there is, if, if you don't know, I'm thoroughly stunned that there is some issues of a, a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that could create some problems in the fertilizer market. Why, you ask? Well, it turns out that we actually get a little bit of uh, of stuff from, from over there. Or at least they are major suppliers of other people around the world. And, what, and whether or not this is going to turn into a full-fledged conflict, who knows? Probably not. It's probably political posturing. Um, but at least that I can hope for. Um, but in the event it does and uh, 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 sanctions begin to come down, then that means a lot of the fertilizer that may come from uh, 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 Russia, for instance, which actually produces a shitload of fertilizer that, that is shipped out from around there. Um, and, you know, they point to what's going on with sanctions on Belarus right now, where uh, Belarus is the third largest producer of potash in the world, which is under 12 million metric tons produced in 2019 and they account for basically one-fifth of the global potash production and uh and how that has been completely shaken up due to uh, uh socioeconomic conflict over a dispute on the eu belarus border and uh and how it's absolutely shaken things up so you know same thing here we could be facing another hit to wow you know Urea prices are down right now. However, it could get absolutely foobarred again with this domino piece that is the size of a meteor uh, that's hanging out outside of the atmosphere with the potential to crash into Earth right now. So, I don't know. Boys, y'all <laughs> ready for uh, the, the Russian-Ukrainian <laughs> war to break out? Or is this uh, is this all political grandstanding? Uh, I, 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 I think, I think we got to get ready. We have to get ready because, uh, sad to say that, uh, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good because Russia has, uh, yeah, that guy at the wheel. And he's bloodthirsty, to put it nicely. Uh, well, gentlemen, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Talk no, I, I'm good. I'm, I, 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 I don't know what's going to happen. I don't. It, it doesn't look good, but uh, you can't put your head in the sand and think that it's not going to affect in some way, shape, or form the fertilizer prices right now, especially when you've got the three companies that we spoke about earlier 
already, you know, uh, saying, "Oh, we're we're it's it's the tariff. It's not us. It's not our you fault." Know. Oh, you know. Oh, they're gonna just. Oh, I bet you. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. They are sitting uh, okay, in the war room right now. Yes. Just raging. Absolutely raging. Staring at one another with their clothes off. I'm just like. Are you, are you as excited as I am? <laughs> uh, gentlemen, let's check out this week's returns. Um, University of Florida study finds mixing turf varieties helps lawns last longer. Lawns containing a mix of turf varieties are able to maintain their aesthetic quality longer than single variety lawns because they are better at dealing with disease and pests, a new University of Florida study has found. These findings demonstrate one possible way to increase sustainability of lawns as reducing the need for pesticides lowers the potential negative environmental impact and financial cost of maintaining turf, said Adam Dale, senior author of the study and assistant professor to the UFIFAS Entomology and Nematology Department. Our study was based on the premise that increasing the genetic diversity of turf grass within a lawn will make that lawn more resilient to stress without sacrificing the lawn aesthetic. Today, most lawns are planted with just one variety of turf grass of a given turf grass species. Uh, the varieties, also called cultivars, are different versions of the same species that have been bred to have specific traits. These cultivated traits are linked to the way the plant looks and responds to different pests or stresses. These turf varieties are produced through cuttings, so individual plugs and pieces of sod are genetically identical to each other and retain the original desired traits. While the traits each give variety its own advantages, their genetic uniformity has a downside. If a given variety is susceptible to disease or insect or pest, then the whole lawn is composed of that variety and the whole lawn is vulnerable to damage if that disease or pest moves in. For example, Floratam, a variety of St. Augustine grass, a grass species used in many Florida lawns across the United States, Floratam dies when infected with a virus called sugarcane mosaic virus. Our current understanding is that all, all other St. Augustine grass cultivars can survive the mosaic virus. However, Floratam is foobard. In their four-year study, the research planted several plots uh, with either a mix of two or four St. Augustine grass varieties and or just one variety. Over the study period, the scientists took high-resolution photos and drone images, of, drone images of each plot, used a special computer program to measure the turf's color density, uniformity, and overall quality. The plots were also assessed, blah, 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 blah. And uh, it turns out, yeah, they like that. Now, there, and I want to say that this is all good stuff. I don't think there's anything groundbreaking in this research right here. And, you know, as this moves further, right, it's we think about, like, pro-turf, is is going to be uh, a uniformity and surface playability, right? Now, I think that's going to be a big thing. But also, one thing we do have to keep in the back of our head would it would be two different grass types that don't play well together. For instance, like zoysia grass and perennial ryegrass, for instance. That can be a gigantic problem. But at least somebody is out there looking at this and came to the conclusion that, for the most part, St. Augustine sucks unless you are... Uh, uh, Inner, inner cultivaring your uh, stand of St. Augustine. Okay. Good stuff. Here's my, yeah, but here's my take on it is that here's the fundamental issue with a lot of the vegetatively propagated warm season grasses. Matt. What's that? All of, all of the warm season grasses, their growth habit and color can be drastically different from each other, even within, like, say, 
St. Augustine. Like I know the difference between several different cultivars of St. Augustine. It doesn't look the same at all. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets even more hinky when you're talking about Bermuda or Zoysia. Mold low. Yep. It looks even more different. And so I need to kind of put that out there in case somebody gets the hair up their ass to, oh, let's have a mixed cultivar warm season lawn. My advice to you is think about how different the growth habit and color of each cultivar will be when placed side by side. And especially think about it when you're looking at it up close every day. Uh, yeah, that would be my only concern, question, mm-hmm. whatever from this is just researching it's fine, but then in, in actual practice and trying to manage two cultivars or two species together requires a pretty deft touch i think at this point right like so i I would i would urge that same caution is let's let's get a little bit deeper on this and and keep noodling around with it before we go and recommend it yeah yeah uh in the same vein the uh the peptide world is getting weirder believe it or not uh (laughs) powered by peptides vesteron's biopesticide now approved south of the border uh, already approved in the United States, Vesteron's Spear Lep, a biopesticide, uh, is working on all kinds of different shit here. Uh, Vesteron developed its product from <laughs> peptides, which are chains of amino acids. The company identifies naturally occurring peptides that have insecticidal properties. According to Vesteron, these neuromuscular targeting peptides overcome resistance problems that can develop from currently available pesticides. Spear Lep was developed to control uh, lepidopterin pest, which include caterpillars that munch on vegetable crops. The product can be used both indoor and on outdoor crops. Spearlap's initial use in Mexico will focus on crucifers, tomatoes, and peppers. Uh, their vice president of sales and marketing said the company will bring Spearlap to market in Mexico uh, through the company's territory managers and their regional distribution uh, partners. Uh, Spearlap is the second product developed by Vestron, which spun out of Western Michigan University. The company's first product, Spear Tea, was developed to address greenhouse insect and pests. The EPA approved the biopesticide in 2018. Spearlet was approved for use in the U.S. in 2019, the same year that Vestron relocated to the Research Triangle of North Carolina. So what's interesting about this, and we're kind of seeing the, the rise of peptides in, uh, in human medicine as well. Uh, I think the most recent uh, uh, phase three clinical trials that have been approved are the uh, the class of GLP one agonist uh, for anybody out there that is on diabetic medications like metformin or Januset, um, you know now we're seeing um, a, a glucogen like peptide agonists um, that are you know injectable things, they're just injectable peptides uh, that move into the body and help regulate blood sugar levels, uh, unlike any of the other medications we have out on the market right now. And, uh, and now we're seeing it move into what, you know, we see it in fertility and now also we see it on the, the world of, um, uh, biopesticides too, where you can actually, you know, at genetic levels start to manipulate 
what happens to a caterpillar species. So interesting work here. And I think we are just beginning to unpack uh, how this works because there are so many potential uh, uh, peptide combinations, right? Um, because, you know, you think about how many amino acids are out there in the world. And, uh, and you know, you, you, you work that out mathematically with a factorial. And the number of combinations are just absolutely incredible. But, you know, the real uh, chemistry and science and biology that comes into it is, you know, how do you make that a scalable, um, shelf-stable uh, uh, type of, of product? And, and that's where the magic comes in. And uh, so, I don't know. I thought it was interesting and worth bringing up. Yeah. Neat yeah, stuff. I mean, this, is, this is the kind of stuff that's going to move us forward, move us out of what I think from today. Just like the, what people were doing 40, 50 years ago, right? Call it the Stone Age. And there'll be there'll be uh, you know people that get yeah, on YouTube watch us in the and be like, man, these guys are a bunch of fucking losers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to if they be, don't already. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be like very optimistic if we can find things that work because specifically in fruit and vegetable production. That is where, right now, there are no good substitutes for organophosphates and carbamates. I mean, that's where it all goes. I mean, it got taken away from golf and uh, turf and even ornamental use, but the last remaining uses are in fruit and vegetable production. Because, remember now, that is where the chlorpyrifos and the diazinon went, for example. Went to fruits and vegetables. <laughs> you know, again, with, with what we're seeing in, um, in the, the, the human trial experiment world, and there, you know, there's all kinds of different things, right? And, you know, for instance, like, uh, what what is it we see in the human body? Growth hormone, which technically is a protein, not actually a peptide. Um, uh, but there are peptides. The molecular weight of it. But yeah, we're yeah, seeing, there's... you know, like BP-157 that's, you know, helping increase, you know, healing rate. I almost said healing factor. Like uh, what is the, uh, there's some, I think, is it a Marvel character that has a healing factor? It was Sabretooth and Wolverine. Are they Marvel or are they DC? I don't know. I don't know. If I'm, I if mean, I'm offending and th- anybody out there, I don't give a shit, to be honest. We but, just need 16 <laughs> more patrons, and then Matt can learn. <laughs> yeah. And then, Matt, there's also this uh, peptide that I was looking at that supposedly stimulates LH and FSH. I see. I've never heard of this. No, it's, it's called the. Uh, I think kisapeptin or something like that. Oh, yes, but yes, 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 yes. It's yes. a peptide, but then there's debate as to how well that actually works in real life because the claims made to me are kind of wild right now because technically an injection of kisapeptin can be a treatment for what's known as secondary hypogonadism because it will cause 
LH and FSH to be released in the normal circadian rhythm. And that is kind of huge because right now there's no real good treatments for that condition other than, what is that, uh, human chorionic gonadotropin, but that has problems too. Because there's like a very tight dosage curve that you have to follow with HCG because, by the way, too much HCG will turn secondary into primary. Uh, Ray is going real deep on dissecting the human body there. Uh, (laughs) And I want to make one more point here is that there are millions of different uh, peptide potential combinations that are out there. So I want to make it clear that just because you see the word peptide does not mean it is all the exact same thing across the board. Uh, again, there mm-hmm. are millions of different potential combinations out there and each of them can elicit a response and each of them may not elicit any response or have no effect on the human body or the plants or whatever the case may be. It may just be a random chain of amino acids that found their way linking up together. Uh, so anyway, interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, gentlemen, real quick, let's check out the mailbag. You've got mail. This one is from John Doe, and he said, no, "How does Matt?" That's already been. Huh? That's already been read. Oh, my oh, fault. Oh, oh, that was that was Sorry. two weeks ago. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, I actually got an email today, and if you gentlemen don't mind, and uh, entertain yeah. me here for just a second while I pull mm-hmm. this up, and this is from Mrs. Mary Bean. Uh, she said, I watched your video about ammonium sulfate and I was very nervous about applying ammonium sulfate to my tall fescue lawn. However, your video convinced me it was the right thing to do. I applied it two ways, uh, two days ago and watered it in copiously. Now I'm noticing little points of white on the tips of the grass blades. I wasn't like that before putting the AMS out. I'm worried I overapplied and perhaps this indicates salt accumulation. I tried so hard to get the right amount, weighed carefully, divided the material as evenly as I could, but now I'm worried about these white tips. Attaching a couple of photos hopefully show what i mean can you give you uh, my opinion uh, and this is coming out of raleigh north carolina and uh, i'm not gonna pull up the uh the images on the show here because i think it's a pretty simple thing to talk about i do know uh raleigh north carolina has been undergoing the same cold snap that a lot of other places are going through as well too so what happened is that you probably applied this and, you know, you watered it and it's made its way into the plant and then it froze. And chances are, as it froze and cell walls ruptured, you're going to get some accumulation of it at the tip because it probably wasn't the best time to apply as, as cold as it is with, with everything going on. However, the caveat is that are you going to cause any lasting damage to your grass no, this is purely just a cosmetic thing because of how cold it is, and it will recover very, very quickly. Um, all you need is a little bit of warm weather and a little bit of, of just natural rain, nothing you need to do whatsoever, and you're going to be just fine. Yeah. Anything else? Gentlemen, am I skipping anything there? Ah, I, I don't think so. Uh, it, uh, and the, the, what you, you, you make a good, very good point in that Using ammonium sulfate on something like that, the time to do it uh, 
as if people are not tired of Ryan and I talking about it is the time to do something like that is actually the period before the grass actually goes dormant for the winter while the grass is still able to uptake it. Yeah. Yeah. That is the time to get your nitrogen down and get it down in a form that is most agronomically beneficial, which is not a delayed release or slow release formulation. You want the grass to uptake that nitrogen ASAP, incorporate it into its structure, and then be done. Yeah. And just to clarify, you know, getting it down now, not the end of the world. You're not going to cause any damage. Nothing, nothing lasting is going to occur here. It's not the most Mm -hmm. opportune time. Uh, And, you know, I understand typically in, in Raleigh, North Carolina right now, uh, you, you know, you can get away with things like that because we're going to be dealing with, you know, 50 degree days, 60 degree days and 40 degree nights. And, you know, in that kind of situation, it wouldn't be just the worst thing in the whole world. Uh, however, you know, when you do have, you know, some cold snaps snap through, it makes it a little bit more, more of a, of a challenge and a little bit less opportune time to do it. But Mrs. Bean, I promise you're going to be a okay, nothing to worry about. And as soon as it heats mm-hmm. up, you'll be real happy. You did get it down. So, uh, it's going to have green grass. That, that is going to wrap up the show today. Unless y'all have anything else to add. Let's go eat some chicken. Let's go eat <laughs> some chicken. Uh, we are what going to head over. Is it? Oh yeah. Can we can we get your top five? It doesn't have to be tonight. I know you're a little under the weather, but can we get your top five list of favorite meats? Mm. <laughs> in order? Uh-huh. Or in no particular order? No, I want it in order, Domain. That's why I want to, I want to oh. give you some time. You don't have to answer this tonight. Yeah. Think about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm going to think. I'm gonna parse think on that. it. And oh, well. I want a top five list of your favorite meats. I, I already have my top five figured out, Matt. Of course you do, Ray. Say that <laughs> at the end of the show next week, we are going to all talk about our top five favorite meats, and it will go perfectly with some of the top five uh, trends that have been noticed. And uh, I think I think we're going to have a little breaking news segment next week that we get to unveil, and uh, I'm really, really excited about that. So <laughs> uh, for those of you that are listening right now and don't know what we're talking about, I promise you, do not skip next week. It is going to be an absolute doozy of uh of entertainment <laughs> coming your direction all right let's go join the patrons and let them choose this week's episode love you all see you next time